Thank you, church family, for being here with us. Welcome to church. Maybe this is your first time here at Bentry, or maybe you've been here since you were a baby. We're so grateful that you are here. Maybe you're joining us from online, so we want to welcome our Bentry Carrollton campus and our Bentry online folks. Come on, let's give everybody a round of applause. Thank you for being here. We've been thinking for, about you and praying for you. We're so grateful to be together as the church of Jesus, gathered and assembled. Hey, I told you last week we're going into two services on September 12th, two in-person services at 9 and 11. There's a few people excited about that. That's awesome. Some of you 9 o'clockers have been waiting to get to the 9 o'clock service so you can get to brunch early. Uh, so we're looking forward to September 12th as we're making more space for people to come. It's amazing what God's doing. He is regathering people that haven't been here in a few years, new people that are finding out about what God's doing here, and we're so grateful to make space for people. And so there are three goals we have in mind that we brought up last week as we head towards September 12th. The first one is to see 500 more people back in our in-person services. 500 people that are back in our in-person services. So you may know people who are thinking about coming back. Would you invite them? And maybe you're watching today and you're thinking, you're considering, you're praying about coming back. September 12th will be an amazing Sunday for you to return. We've missed you. We would love to see you. Now, if you've got health concerns or any of those things, we want you to stay engaged online as long as you need to. But when you are ready, we will be ready for you. In fact, going to two services helps us spread out more uh, in, in our services. We know that the COVID numbers are not going in our face. So we want to be prayerful and cautious, and we can be people of faith and people who are smart and cautious at the same time. So we're going to do whatever we can to make sure that we provide a safe environment for you. Now, CDC has recommended masks again, so if, if that helps you, that puts you at ease, or those you're with, feel free to put one on if you need to when you're here, but it's totally up to you, but we want to, uh, we want to acknowledge that as well. Our second goal is for 150 new volunteers or servants that we call them, leaders who are joining us in ministry for the fall. As we go to two services, uh, we need more people to rise up and, and lead in various capacities in children's ministry and guest services and student ministry. And if you're here at the 1030, you have benefited from people serving you in some capacity from opening the door in kids' ministry, wherever. So maybe this is the moment to say, I want to be a part of serving in ministry, to teach children, to raise them up in God's way. So think about how and where you you might be able to serve. God's got gifts in you, passions and abilities he has placed in your heart. And so let's channel it towards the purpose of serving others in ministry. The last one is especially for our Bentry Online family. We want here at Bentry Online to be digitally connected and relationally connected, to be digitally engaged and relationally connected. We're so grateful for the gift of technology, but the danger is that we can be isolated and all by ourselves, and we don't want that for you. So jump into a small group online or a hybrid group going on. We want you to have relationships with other people in our community. Maybe if you're uh, participating in the service by yourself, invite somebody to join you. Maybe a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, someone to come and be a part of the service with you. We want our online ministry to be a catalyst for change in your community. We want this online platform and ministry to be a catalyst for change in your community. So let's see it as an opportunity to reach people. So let's be digitally engaged and relationally connected. As we said last week, that God is on the move here at Bentry, just like he was in the book of Acts. And what happened in the book of Acts was that the church of Jesus was devoted to prayer and intercession. And they devoted themselves to needing God and calling out to God for his grace and his power. 
So the same power at Pentecost is what's fueling the ministry of our church. So here's something new that we're doing. We started this a couple of months ago, but every second Wednesday of each month, every second Wednesday of each month, we are gathering to pray. Not to preach, not to do anything else, but to pray. Come on, how many prayer warriors do we have in the house? We're gathering to pray beginning this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. It won't be produced, it won't be super structured. We're just coming to pray because we believe that we win battles on our knees, that God brings revival to the nations as we approach the throne of grace and say, God, we need you. We are desperate for you. You are the only solution for our world today. So let's gather church. Let's be a church of prayer here, here at Bentry. So join us this Wednesday night at 7 as we gather to pray. Last week, we opened up Matthew 16. And looked at this watershed moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. And I want to read you this passage of scripture again that we're in for the next few weeks. Here's Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that, uh, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Thanks be to God for his word. Last week we looked at this bold declaration of Jesus. That based on this reality, this confession from Peter, that Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overpower it or overcome it, they won't prevail. He's building his church, and this is what Jesus has been doing since he came to planet Earth. He has been building for himself a gathering of people, an assembly of people called out to himself. Jesus did not come to build a country, he came to build his church. Not to start an organization or an institution, but to launch a movement of people endowed with the power of his spirit who would change the world. And here in this text, he commits himself to build his church. Jesus builds his church. But in Matthew 28, before Jesus ascended, he gave us what we call the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, Jesus commanded us to make disciples. So Jesus commits to building his church, and he commands us to make disciples. So Jesus builds his church through Jesus' followers, like you and I, making disciples. A disciple is simply a follower of Jesus who is growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus or becoming more and more like him every single day. Whether you've been a Christian for a decade or just a week or a day, you are called to be a disciple, growing more into the image and likeness of Jesus. So Jesus builds his church. We are called to make disciples. And as a pastor, I've often found myself hijacking the job description of Jesus, thinking it's my job to build a church. But the truth is that our job is to make disciples and Jesus' job is to build 
the church. So we are committed to making more disciples, new people coming into the faith in Jesus Christ, and to making better disciples, more disciples, better disciples, preaching the gospel to all nations, making disciples for Jesus. In fact, that is one of the three key vision initiatives here at Bentry, and you've already heard this in the past, that we want to pursue our community. As we think about what is Jesus calling us to, that's one of the key initiatives here at Bentry to pursue our community. And over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about one at a time. So today we're talking about what does it mean for us to lovingly and intentionally pursue people in our community with the good news, with the message of Jesus Christ. Our family has now moved from Houston to Carrollton. What we've realized in this process is that selling a house is easy, but buying a house is really difficult right now. And so it seems like everybody in the world is trying to get to Texas and their in-laws and all their family, which is fine. I get it. Nobody wants to live anywhere other than Texas. I wouldn't either. But I just wish they weren't moving here the same time the Abraham family is moving here to Texas. And... Uh, let just let you, you know, we were on a wait list for like four months and we have finally decided to build a house here. So we're here for good. We're stuck, I guess. We're not leaving. So we're here for good. <laughs> so we're in the whole process. And if you worked with a realtor or, or you've been around one or if you are a realtor, something they keep saying is location, location, location. Right? What determines the value of a home, or at least in majority part, what determines the demand, the value of a home is its location. How close are they to a freeway? What schools are nearby? How close are they to a city? How far is the nearest Chick-fil-A? All that really matters when you pick a home. Location adds value to a house. Well, here in Matthew 16, it's all about location, location, location. What adds value, what accentuates the value of this conversation that Jesus has with his followers is where this conversation takes place. The geographical space, the city, the region in which Jesus is saying these things in Matthew 16 to his followers. So we read in verse 13 that when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So this story, this conversation is situated in Caesarea Philippi. Here's a picture of this town. It was a great Greco-Roman city, flourishing, sort of the center of so many things in those days. It was named after Caesar because there was a beautiful marble temple built for Caesar. It was called the home of Caesar. It's named after Philip, who was Herod the Great's son, who reigned here and brought a lot of prosperity to this town. So Caesarea Philippi. For over a thousand years, though, this town, this region has been the epicenter of false idolatry and worship to various gods. About a thousand years ago in the Old Testament, you read about Jeroboam, who right next to the city set up a golden calf and worshiped the golden calf that led to the downfall of the northern tribes of Israel. During the period of the kings, it's in Caesarea Philippi that the worship of Baal took place. There are over 14 temples here in Caesarea Philippi devoted to various pagan gods. So during the time of Jesus, people would come literally from all over the world because no matter who they were or who they worshipped, their god was most likely represented here in Caesarea Philippi. 
And Jews consider this a significant place as well because there was a spring flowing out of Caesarea Philippi that fed into the Jordan River. In fact, the largest body of water that fed into the Jordan River came from Caesarea Philippi. But the major god of that town was a god called Pan. P-A-N. Here's a picture of Pan. He was half goat and half human. He was believed to be the god of fertility and crops and wild animals and life. So people did all kinds of bizarre things to appease this god called Pan. If you were to go to sort of the city center of Caesarea Philippi, here's kind of a, a picture you would see. You would see various temples to various gods. A temple devoted to Augustus. Of course, three to Pan, the court of Pan on the far right, the upper tomb and the lower tomb. And even a temple devoted to Zeus. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about the cave entrance, which was believed to be the gateway to the underworld. In fact, this whole scene was literally called the gates of Hades. Does that ring a bell? So it, it sort of adds value when Jesus looks at this picture and asks his followers, you got all of these things that you're seeing, but who do you say that I am? What's your opinion of me? Am I one of these gods? Am I a prophet like Elijah? Am I one of the gods out there? Who do you say that I am? Caesarea Philippi for a long time has been known for perversion, sexual immorality, and even human sacrifice. It was a horrible place to be, one of absolute abomination to God. And no Jew would ever want to go to this city they would, in fact, make sure that they would stay miles and miles away from this horrible place. It was so dark and demonic and uncomfortable. No rabbi would ever take his students there. It's the place that Mufasa would tell Simba, that shadowy place, don't go there. Anywhere but there. You got to stay away from there. But Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus takes his followers, his disciples, to this epicenter of darkness and demonic activity. And in fact, it is there that Jesus is saying, I'm building my church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not prevail. In fact, Jesus would stand on the very foothills of the largest mountain in Israel that came into Caesarea Philippi on rocks there and say, on this rock, I'm building my church. This shifted everything for the disciples of Jesus. It changed their perspective, their mindset. And here, this moment taught the disciples of Jesus that Jesus calls his followers to pursue the unlikeliest of people. That he calls his followers to pursue the most unlikeliest of people. The people that you should have stayed away from, that your parents told you not to get close to the odd ones, the people so lost, so far from God, that in fact, Jesus actually goes there and he calls us to pursue them. The disciples would have never thought in their wildest imagination they would be standing with their Jewish rabbi here in Caesarea Philippi. But it's amazing that Jesus actually leaves this town and goes straight to Jerusalem where he would be hung, beaten, and crucified. Because he would be crucified for the very people he just left in Caesarea Philippi. In the Old Testament, 
The modus of operation for God was to bring the nations to Israel, the temple, but then to witness the presence of God. So the nations would come to Israel to see the activity of God. But now God was sending his followers to the nations with the presence of God. They were not coming and seeing a temple. They were the temple to go and pursue people who were far from God. So what was attractive now is expensive. The attractional move is a missional move. It's not just come and see, but go and pursue those who are far from God. This changed the paradigm for the disciples. They learn here that Jesus pursues the unlikeliest of people. Maybe you're listening to me today or you're joining us online and you have counted yourself out from God being able to reach you. I wouldn't want anything to do with my story. I'm too far from him. I'm too dirty. I've done too many things. I've said too many horrible things. I've cared less and less about God. He surely wouldn't want to reach me. But here's the beautiful thing about the redemptive story of God. God purposefully saves and chooses and uses the most unlikeliest of people. A man named David who was an adulterer and a murderer. Abraham, an idolater and a liar. Jacob, a deceiver and a cheater. Rahab, a prostitute. He would choose Paul who would lead the, who led the greatest genocide against Christians. A woman at the well who had been with five husbands and now shacking up with somebody that wasn't her husband. Even Peter, who was kind of the hero of the story a little bit, he would deny Jesus three times and Jesus would still go after him. So it tells me as unlikely as you might feel from the reach of God, you're right in the middle of God's plan. You're right at the heart of God who loves you, who cares about you, who yearns for you, who is pursuing you even in this moment. R.C. Sproul Jr., he said this recently, that if Adolf Hitler, in his last moment, repented of his sins. He would now be enjoying the blessings of eternity. That seems a little unfair, doesn't it? It might even make us uncomfortable. He did so many horrific things. But if he turned his heart to Jesus, he would have been saved. Not because his sins were unpunished, but because they would have been punished on Jesus. No matter who you are, what you've done, Jesus is constantly pursuing the unlikeliest of people for himself. So I wonder today who you have stopped pursuing because they seem too far away. Or it's been too long and they're so resistant to the gospel and you've stopped praying about them. You've stopped interceding for them and being a light to them and being in a relationship with them. They seem to be so unlikely from the reach of God. Maybe they were too high in their position or too low in their position, wherever it might be. That you've stopped praying for them. Maybe today God is saying, will you start pursuing people again that I'm placing in your life? What drove the religious people so crazy in the time of Jesus was that he was friends with sinners and tax collectors and people, quote-unquote, unlovable by the community. But yet Jesus went to them and for them. He had a friendship with them. He didn't just preach at them. He was friends with them. He invited them into relationship, and he had meals with them openly and publicly. He had people most unlike him in his life. Reggie Joyner, who is an amazing leader of a student ministry organization called Orange, he says it like this, 
That we should never embrace a version of the gospel that doesn't require us to do life with someone who isn't like us. That the gospel of Jesus is constantly using us and moving us to people who are unlike us. Maybe they don't believe what we believe or behave like we behave, but yet we are in life, in community, in relationship with people who are unlike us. Why? It's really hard to share the love of Jesus with people you don't actually love, isn't it? It's hard to share the love of Jesus with people you don't even know. How will they be clued into the heart of God, the love of Jesus, if we keep pushing them away and are never in, never in relationship with them? There are to be people who are unlike us in our own life. According to cultural expectations, Jesus should not have had this incredible conversation in Caesarea Philippi. He should have had the conversation in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the pristine religious center. He should have had the conversation where all the rabbis would have been around to listen to him. He should have had the conversation there in Jerusalem filled with so much rich history and significance. That's the place to have had the conversation. But he on purpose chooses to have this watershed moment of the church of Jesus and his ministry, not in Jerusalem, but in Caesarea Philippi. Because he wanted these bystanders and onlookers who were so far from God, probably didn't even know about the God of the Bible, to listen in and meet him, to be around him. Here's maybe an odd question for you. Do all the people in your life look like they're from Jerusalem? Or are there at least some from Caesarea Philippi? Are they all cleaned up and whole and holy and saints, speaking Christianese all the time? Or are there some misfits and people who don't belong, people who don't believe yet, people who are living lifestyles that are totally wrong? But are you still in a relationship with them? That's the question I had to ask myself because we're new to a city. All my friends are bentriers, <laughs> wonderful people. But am I pursuing people who are far from Jesus, who are from Caesarea Philippi? Because the truth is this, we are all from Caesarea Philippi at once. And Jesus pursued us. He called us out to be his people. We had our own little gods. We had our own little temples. We worshiped self. We lived for our own life. But Jesus came for you with you in mind. And he built his church for you and with you in mind. I tell you, this whole idea of pursuing people, I'm not always good at it. I've blown it many times. In fact, there were been people that got put in my path. And yet I didn't pursue them with the love of Jesus. So don't listen to this as I get it all right. I remember one moment I had a good friend in high school called Alexander. He was from Ukraine. He was his life of the party, incredibly strong, healthy, he was a bodybuilder kind of guy. And we were good friends in high school. And after we graduated, we hadn't seen each other in about a year. And I was working for Verizon at that time at a mall and I saw him after like a year of not seeing him. It was a slow day, so don't tell my boss, but we talked for like an hour at work, just catching up on life. We talked about everything, school, college, friends, family, all of that. And I heard the sensing of the Lord in my heart to share my faith with him, but I didn't. Didn't pursue him at all. But an hour later, we said our goodbyes, and he told me he's got to go because he's driving up to Nashville that day to go to a bike rally the next day in Nashville. So we said our goodbyes and we left. And about three, four weeks later, I saw his sister at the mall. 
Hey, I got to see your brother last week. How's he doing? How's Alexander? And she said, oh, you didn't hear. He was in a bike wreck in Nashville at a bike rally, and he died. Can't even describe to you what that moment felt like. Sort of a ton of bricks hitting your core. I, I know God's sovereign, but yet did I miss a moment to pursue somebody with Jesus? Did God put him in my line of sight? Maybe the last day he was here on earth or the day before with an assignment for me. But maybe I didn't want to be uncomfortable or have an awkward moment, so I refused to share the most important thing to him. Jesus calls us to pursue, to lovingly, intentionally pursue even the most unlikeliest of people. The second thing you realize here is that Jesus, in, in calling us to pursue people, pursuing people is not a pressure to carry. It's rather a privilege to enjoy. Why? Because the Father is already drawing them to himself. God is pursuing, so we don't technically pursue. We join God in his pursuit of people. He is already drawing people, and this is what liberates people. Otherwise, we'll think, well, this whole idea of pursuing people and sharing my faith, it's a checklist. I got to slip a track somewhere and, and think of some unique, clever way to slip the gospel because I feel the pressure. No, 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 it's not a pressure to carry. It's a privilege to enjoy because you are joining God in his pursuit of people. So Jesus here, standing in front of the gates of Hades, says, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And it is that reality, that confession that saves anybody. No matter who you are, what you've done, where in the religious sphere you are in, that confession by faith that Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are God. You're not one among these gods. You're not just a prophet or a good person or a religious leader or a pious leader. No, you are the long-awaited Messiah. That reality, that confession saves anybody. So Peter makes that confession to Jesus. But notice what Jesus says to him in verse 17. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Jesus is saying this amazing response, Peter, it didn't come from you. Not because you're so smart or so experienced. No, it didn't come from you. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. The Father opened up Peter's eyes to see the true identity of Jesus. The Father drew his heart, opened his heart, unveiled the wonder of Jesus to Peter. And every single time, any person that comes to faith, they don't come because our words are so clever, because we knew all the answers, and we were so theologically accurate. No, they come to faith in Christ because the Father is drawing them. He is at work in their heart, bringing them to, them to himself. He did it for Peter, and he does it for anybody that comes to faith in Christ. Jesus said it like this in John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the hope that takes the pressure off of us. So we might be a link in the chain as God is drawing somebody we may get to see the fruit of it. We may not. But we may get to spur on a curiosity. We may get to answer a question. We may get to be one chain in the link of the Father drawing people to himself. When Stacey and I were dating, 
I was in Houston and she was in Dallas at that time and I loved to go see her even for dinner and drive back four hours. So one day I got in my car to drive up here to Dallas and my car wasn't working. I should have probably just stayed home, but rather I took a Greyhound. That's how a desperate was I for this girl. <laughs> took a Greyhound bus. It's a four hour journey, so I sit on the bus and four rows in front of me, there are two guys who just met. <laughs> they are the most different people you can ever imagine. One young, one old, two different races, two different styles and walks of life, but they were both lost. And they immediately became best friends. It was shocking to me. They united around their lostness and they were best buddies for the next four hours. They started talking about their party life and what they were doing and all the women they were running around with and all kinds of craziness. And the Lord kind of stirred in my heart. Hey, I want you to share Christ with him. So God, I'm not a greyhound. Like, can this be the one place? <laughs> I don't want to disobey you like I did before, but can this be the one place? What am I supposed to do? Like get the microphone in front of the greyhound? I have an announcement to make. That's not what I'm going to do. So I'm in this four-hour journey on the Greyhound, and towards the end of the journey, man, it's, it's welling up inside of me. I keep hearing this voice, and I said, okay, God, just give me a way to, to share the Christ, and I will. And towards the end of that trip, they were both saying, hey, let's exchange numbers so we can hang out and party in Dallas. And so that's when I heard the Lord say, take his number down. I said, God, I'm a Christian, not a stalker. Like, <laughs> I, I don't want to do this. This isn't for me to do. Give me some other way, Lord. Let this cup pass for me. But sure enough, they exchanged numbers, and I didn't take it down. I was too awkward. And then I heard the Lord say, come on, Libin. And then I said, okay, God, give me one more chance. And sure enough, as soon as I said that, one of the guys said, hey, I missed the last two digits. Could you repeat the number? And so I wrote his number down. I didn't call him that day or anything. I just kept it in my pocket, wondering what to do. And the next couple of days later, I texted the guy. And this is an awkward way to start a text. Hey, you don't know me, but I was on the Greyhound with you. <laughs> so I'm texting this guy. I don't know. He doesn't know me. But here's what I say. You don't know me, but I overhear your conversation. Just want you to know out of all the pleasures you're having in the world, Jesus is better. And he's got a plan for you. Just want you to know that. Hit send. This guy calls me. It's like, oh no, he's going to come after me. So as a spiritual pastor that I am, I hit decline. That's what we do. <laughs> hey, I did my part. Like, I, I did a Lord. You take the rest, right? I did my part. <laughs> but he called me again. I was like, oh. I picked up, and this is what he said. He said, who are you? It's like, look, you don't know me again. <laughs> but I just want you to know God's got a plan for you. And here's what he said. He said, I've been running from God. And I asked God if he still had a plan for me to send somebody out of the nowhere and tell me that he had a plan. Let me tell you, I didn't do much. Praise God. God was drawing this man, and he took all of my hesitation and disobedience into account. Because for a long time, God had been working on this person, and all I had to do was simply obey. This is what God's doing to people all around you, people that you might be in a line with, people in your family, people in your workplace. God is drawing them. He said, will you be a mouthpiece for me? I'm watering the ground. I'm stirring up curiosity. I'm letting their life get so disheveled to where they are needing hope that last. God is drawing. He is pursuing. He's inviting you to pursue people with him. 
The last thing I want to share with you from this text is pursuing people with the goodness of Jesus is most important and most urgent. It is the most important and most urgent thing we could do. A lot of times those things conflict. What's urgent and important? Here, this is both. This is most urgent and most important. Jesus is pursuing through you the most unlikeliest of people. He is drawing people to himself. And it's a pleasure. It's a privilege to join in. But it's also the most urgent and the most important. I imagine as the disciples are having this conversation with Jesus, they're getting uncomfortable. They're saying, God, this is important and all. But can we have this conversation somewhere else? And as if being in Caesarea Philippi wasn't bad enough, Jesus in the next verses following talks about how he's going to die. How he's heading to the cross. How he's going to be raised from the dead. And Peter, he thinks he's on a roll. So he interjects and says, no, 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 Jesus. I won't let you die. You can't go to the cross. We're just getting started. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, if you prevent me from getting to the cross, that is satanic and selfish of you. Jesus is starting to unfold the plan of redemption that they don't understand. So maybe they're thinking, I don't know if we want to be a part of the world. In a place we don't want to be in, and we follow this Jesus, he's about to die. Why would we want to follow him? So Jesus continues the conversation in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Notice these last two questions. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? And the word there is soul. What will it benefit someone if he gains, if she gains the whole world yet loses their life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? Jesus drives home this point with these two questions. Imagine you got a balanced weight scale. And in one side of the scale, you have the whole world. And you've gained it. The whole world, the richest of the world, the fame, the prestige, the, the influence, the, the, the accolades, the titles, whatever someone can control. You got it. It's all on you. You've got what everyone wants. The whole world is yours. That's on one end of the scale. But on the other end is your soul. Your life, one life, one single soul. And if you've gained the whole world, but have lost a soul, Jesus is saying you've actually lost everything. It benefits you nothing to gain the entire world, but to lose your own soul. You may exist, but you're not alive. A life without Christ is no life at all. To gain everything and yet lose a life. But a life with Jesus is far more valuable. A soul that knows him is coming alive to him is far more valuable. A soul that serves Jesus, serves his body is far more valuable and precious than gaining the entire world. And then Jesus asks this second question, which is really a tragedy. What will a man or woman give in exchange for his life? Let's say they've realized that they've realized, man, my soul was more valuable than the whole world. But in exchange of the whole world, I've given up my soul. And they've come to this realization. And Jesus is saying, what would that person now give in exchange for his soul? And the answer is, of course, everything he has. But the problem is, 
What he has in his hand, his whole life is not as valuable as the soul he gave up. So he can't buy it back. She can't get it back. Because what they have in the whole world is less valuable than their soul. So conundrum, how can I buy my soul back? That's why Jesus says, but if you follow me, you will find life. You will find real life, true life. You can't buy your soul back, but I can give you a new life. This is what Jesus is saying. What matters the most is the soul of that person. Your soul, my soul, our life. You can gain everything, accolades, jobs, promotions, riches, all of that. But if your soul is not filled with Christ or in Christ, you have lost it all. That's why we pursue people. There's a lot going on. There's a pandemic. There's, we're busy. We got our own issues. But ultimately, what matters for all eternity is the souls of people who are without Christ. Is there anything more valuable than that? So Jesus is saying, those who follow me will go with me even to Caesarea Philippi to pursue people. You'll do what's inconvenient, not comfortable. You'll deny yourself and take up the cross, even if it's painful, even if it's not your personality style. You'll follow me in pursuing people who are far from me. Paul understood this, and he says this verse in Romans 9 that I still to this day cannot read with an honest application to myself. Romans 9, this is what Paul says, verse 1 to 3. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you're going to think I'm bluffing, I'm exaggerating, I'm lying, but I'm not. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. And Paul is thinking about other Jews in his life. He's saying, you know what? I have such an unceasing anguish for them that I wish I was cut off from Christ if that meant they could be saved. That's bizarre. He's saying, I wish I could go to hell on their behalf because that's where love is leading me. I've got this unceasing anguish for them. This is a group of people who hate Paul. They're trying to kill Paul. They've called him a sellout, a traitor. They're as opposite as they can be from Paul on a political spectrum or on a religious spectrum or in a belief system. They're in the law. Paul is in Christ. This is when Paul could rebuttal and offer a debate and push them against from him. But he says, no, my love for Christ has led me to this unceasing anguish for people who are without Christ. Anguish. Do we ever say that word? It's more than concern. It's more than just a flippant thought. It's an unceasing anguish that burns inside of us that I can't shake off, that I cannot numb. We've got our own ways of numbing the anguish. Entertainment, more vacation, more work, busyness. Paul is saying this pursuit of people away from Jesus is an unceasing anguish in my life. Once atheist Actually, a well-known atheist once said, I don't actually mind the people who share the gospel with me because if they really believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, to eternity, how much would they have to hate me to know the way to eternal life and not tell me about it? If 
you believe this in the core of your heart, that Christ alone saves a person. It's not a matter of tolerance or intolerance. It's a matter of love that compels you to overflow with hope in Jesus. Say, I can't let this be a secret. I can't let it be a secret. Mike Pember was a professional basketball player who won championships and in his height of his success and career, he was silent about his faith and never told anybody about the gospel because he wanted to be so popular and liked. And when he retired, he said, I would have these this taunting dreams of my teammates going into a lake of fire in his dreams and looking at him and saying, you knew this, but you never told me. You saw this, you knew this, but you never told me. That's why Paul would say in the next chapter, Romans 10, how can they call on the one they have not believed? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them, without you preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let that be our feet. That what matters is the good news we bring into your office, into your classes, into the neighborhood. The good news we bring, tidings of good news and great joy for all the people. Because to us, a Savior has been born. Three things I want to ask you to do as we pursue community. Pray, care, and share. It's real simple. Pray for people, care for them, and share with them. There are hundreds, if not thousands of names on the prayer wall right underneath me. And here's just one string of names of people that you have written into the wall that are far from Jesus. Are you still praying for them by name? Let's not forget people who are without Christ. And if you've got people in your heart right after the service, you can grab a tile and put a name on there and say, God, I'm praying for them. Put it on your home mirror, your window, wherever it might be, something physical to where you are reminded to pray for people. God, draw them. Use me today. Every day when I wake up, I got to tell somebody about the hope that I have. I got to pursue someone intentionally and lovingly. God, I want to be sensitive to your voice, so make me sensitive to your heartbeat today. What's on your heart? We're so often good at telling God what's on our heart. But if we were to ask him, God, what's on your heart? Who's on your mind? Who's on your heart today? He wouldn't give you names and faces of people. Pray for people. But also find ways to care for them. Tangibly, how can you care for that coworker who's in need? How can you care for that friend, your neighbor? How can you tangibly, physically care for them? Enter into a relationship with them. And then share. As God opens doors, share with them. As God stirs up curiosity, we share the hope of the gospel. Here's a great tool you can use. It's called www.blesseveryhome.com. You can go online today and put your address in and sign up for free. And what it'll give you is a list of all your neighbors, people who live around you. It'll give you every rooftop in your community. It's an amazing technology tool. It gives you specific names to pray for and how you can care for your neighbors. You can track it. You can Get new names every day or pray for the same names in your community. Let's be a church who prays, who cares, and who shares. Because God is pursuing them. And he's inviting us to join him in the pursuit of people. Would you bow your head with me today?
Maybe you're here today, and I want you to know if you're far from Jesus, he pursues you so much to where he brought you here today, not by coincidence or an accident. Maybe you're logged on online, and you happen to scroll across the service feed. You're here on purpose because your soul matters to God. You can gain the whole world, friend, but if you lose your soul, you've lost everything. Today, Jesus is saying, will you follow me? And let me give you real life, true life, eternal life, fulfilling life. Lose yourself in me and you will find the real life you were created for. You don't have to strive. You don't have to try to prove God. You can, by grace, through faith, accept him. And say what Peter says, God, I believe you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And that reality, that confession, that belief changes who you are forever. Father, we just pray right now for people in our normal minds that we are thinking about. Names, faces. The people on our mind are the people on your heart. So baptize us with anguish that doesn't cease. More than a concern, more than a temporary thought. Something that grips our heart. With what breaks the heart of God. You told us in 1 Peter that God is not slow in keeping his promises, but is simply being patient. Not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance in Jesus. You have been patient. Now may we pursue the people you are pursuing. This week, God, put people in our path to pray, to care, and to share. The people that we have been praying for, maybe for a long time, maybe a parent, maybe a child, They would ask questions this week, and we would have opportunities, even in conversations that are uncomfortable, even if we have to take the initiative. That person's soul matters to you than the whole world. And let it matter to us. God, we love you. Thank you for coming for us who lived in Caesarea Philippi, worshiping ourselves in our own form of God. But yet, you saved us, you pursued us. And may we be compelled with love to pursue our community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.